Revelation 22, which is now on the screen, which is great. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angels to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, 
Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, really good to see you. Uh, on the screen, you can see a picture of a famous world landmark that is shrouded with scaffolding. Um, if you were to travel up to central London, you'd still see that uh, Big Ben is only partially visible because it's been surrounded for a long time and a long time to come before the restoration process uh, has been completed. Now, look, just imagine scaffolding is something that is very functional. It's there to do a job. It's not there to look pretty, but just imagine that uh, the person that put up scaffolding, the company that put up the scaffolding did such a wonderful job that they decided to go to town, lots of bells, lots of whistles to make it Christmassy as well. And it became, the scaffolding became the focus rather than Big Ben behind it. Just imagine that. And when it came to a time when it was due to be taken down, people were sad and campaigning because they wanted to keep the scaffolding up. It was more significant, it was more of a blessing to their eyes and their festive spirits than the objects behind it. Just imagine that. Now, of course, the, uh, the owner of uh, Big Ben uh, would say, don't be so silly, take it down. It's functional. It's not impressive. It's not as great as the real thing. It needs to be taken down so that you can see what has been newly made behind it, this new reality. I want us to see that in all its glory, says the owner. And of course, there's a little bit of that in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. In Revelation 21 that we saw last week, we saw the whole new cosmos that God is making that will descend from the heavens to the earth, the new heavens and the new earth that God will bring into reality. So we're not to be too overly concerned with the scaffolding of this world. Something greater is coming. We've got responsibilities. We need to be good stewards but let's not get too focused on the scaffolding because there is a greater reality that's going to come. That's the message of Revelation 21 and 22. And as the focus narrows, like a, with a camera lens on your phone or with a physical camera, remember those old things? As you would tighten the, the aperture a little bit to zoom in on something on the focal point of the lens, Chapter 21 is concerned with the whole of the new heavens and the new earth. But in chapter 22, the focus tightens. So it's on the new Jerusalem. And what is central to that place? What is central to that new reality where God dwells? Well, it's about life in chapter 22. It's about a gift and it's about a longing. Life, gift and longing. Let's look at chapter 22, uh, verse 1. If you were to uh, jump on a plane when you're allowed to do that again and go to the great cities of the world, you will know from your own eyes or you would know from the history books if you can't travel or you've, you've traveled in the past that the great cities of the world are always founded on rivers. Rome, Rome's founded on the Tiber. You could go to Paris, that's founded on the Seine. You could go to London, that's on the Thames, of course. Here we see... The whole of the cosmos focused in on the great city of God, the new Jerusalem. And notice that once again, just as in the, the great cities of the world, you've got the city of God and central to the city of God, verse 1 and into verse 2, is the glory of God that's evident in the river of God. It's called, verse 1, the river of the water of life. It's the life source, the very heartbeat of the new creation, the water of life that flows from the throne of God, where God the Father and God the Son are seated and emanating 
uh, proceeding, flowing from that throne is this river. It's the river of God, the life-giving river of God that gives life to the tree of life. And the tree of life has leaves that are there for the healing of the nations. This, this river is, is as clear as crystal. And it's not just clear. It wouldn't just be a, if it were a real thing. It wouldn't just be nice to taste. It's, it's symbolic of the life of God, of, of the life of God that goes out from the throne of God. No one's seen a tree as beautiful as this. No one's uh, experienced a power or a source of energy from a tree as great as this. This uh, tree of life that gets its strength and its resources from the river of life speaks of a reality in the new heavens and the new earth where there is healing, where there is now decay, where there is a reuniting, where there is a rendering of our relationship. It's a, it's a healing, a bringing together of all society that are against God, all nations that shake their puny fists at God. There is a river of life that flows from the throne of God. And it's not just in Revelation chapter 22 that we see this, of course. This, this river of life, this life-giving river from the heart and person and nature of God flows through the sun's scorched pages and historical reality of every book of the Bible. It may not be a reality to us. We, we can have a tea or a coffee, a soft drink or a, an alcoholic drink, and it gives us some pleasure. But the river of life, the water of life, the, the life-giving nature of water that's common to us as a real reality in every Middle Eastern country and the sun-scorched pages of the Bible. It's there in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, you've got this fourfold uh, river that encapsulates the Eden of God, the, the, the paradise of God, the place where God dwelled. It's an Edenic uh, paradise, and it's an Edenic temple where God dwells with his people. It's there in the book of Numbers when God's people are out in the wilderness, in the desert, and they're parched. They're, they're fearful for their life, and God provides through the staff of God. God provides water from a rock. And it's there in particular in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 43 through to 47, the glory of God returns to the temple of God. And emanating from the temple of God is the water of life. Ezekiel chapter 47, beginning at verse 1, we, we see the, the flow of the water increasing in depth every 500 meter units from the throne of God. First of all, after the first uh, thousand stadia which is about 500 meters the water is up to shin length and then it's up to knee and then waist and then it's too deep for anyone to cross it to ford it and wherever the water flows in this uh, vision of ezekiel's mind and heart there is life that is given the water flows into the dead sea and it's irrigated and life is given to the dead sea that's so rich with salt and what's surrounding uh, Ezekiel's vision, what's surrounding the river of life, there is trees, abundant trees, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Wherever the life of God goes, it brings life. And John, who wrote Revelation, also recorded the Gospel of John. And in John 7, verses 37 to 39, there's a very key passage about this theme of the river of life that flows throughout the Bible. Here it is in John 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, 
Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. What was it in Jesus' mind and heart that made him stand up at this Feast of Tabernacles? Seven, eight-day feast that reminded God's people of how God provided for them whilst they lived in tents in the desert places. They were thirsty and God provided water from a rock and their lives were saved. And Jesus uses this opportunity to say, all of you who are thirsty, all of you who are parched, all of you who are seeking to have your physical and soul quirk, uh, physical and soul longing quenched from somewhere else. I know the source of life. I know the real rock. I know the source of real life-giving satisfaction. I know, I know the river of life, and it flows through me. It's the Spirit of God flowing from the throne of Father and Son. It's the Spirit of God that is the lifeblood of the new heavens and the new earth, and it's the lifeblood of every Christian. The physical needs that we have are always symbolic of our deep spiritual longings and needs. Let me... Give you an example of that. There's a man who's on the screen. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was a very famous um, writer and journalist and broadcaster. Let me read you a quote as you, from his lips, he became a Christian, but as you focus on his image, let me read to you some words that he wrote. He said this, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People will occasionally stare at me in the streets that's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. <laughs> That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, he says, I say to you and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together and they are nothing. They are less than nothing. They are a positive impediment measured against one drink of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. End of quote. Here's a man who has had a taste of the Spirit of God, who always points away from himself into the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, I want to know more of it. Everything I've had, uh, pleasure, fame, renown, success. It is nothing in comparison with the small taste I've had of knowing Jesus. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more satisfying to the soul of your heart, your very nature. Nothing on earth can satisfy in comparison with knowing King Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, you face the battle within. But in this day, of Revelation chapter 22, this life-giving river that flows verse one and into verse two from the throne, there'll be no more death or decay. And it's available for everyone, verse 14, who's had their robes washed 
in the blood of Jesus. That means we stand in, not in our own righteousness, our own suitability, our own goodness, our own enoughness. We stand in the enoughness and the righteous record of King Jesus. We need to understand what Muggeridge is saying. He's saying something that we do not want to misunderstand. He says, the reality of knowing Jesus from his own experience, from John chapter 3, from Revelation chapter 22, from John chapter 7, from a whole host of passages in the New Testament, is not knowing about God. It's knowing the very lifeblood of God throbbing in our heart, flowing through our veins by the life-giving, sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, who is the lifeblood of God. Every Christian knows a taste, a draft, a dram of the lifeblood of God. But in that day, in Revelation 22, there is a river, a flood flowing through the city of God that doesn't just give life to the trees, but it gives life to every Christian that now we have a foretaste. We struggle, we wrestle with that longing. But it's coming just as much as Jesus is coming. And we have a taste of it now as the Spirit of God brings in our hearts and in our souls the very life-giving nature of God. It's John who wrote the Gospel of John, now writes in Revelation chapter 22 to the churches in Asia Minor, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. It's not just at the end of Revelation, by the way. It's the spirit who gave life to every Christian that John wrote to, who stood up for Jesus and lost their life as martyrs. Remember Revelation chapter 12? It's the spirit who gives life and confidence to every martyr to stand up with certainty that the best is yet to come, to, to have courage, to bear witness to Jesus. It's the spirit who goes out from the throne of God and breathes life into the servants of God, who are the 144,000 of God, who are the people of God, this great multitude from tribe and tongue and nation. It's the spirit who gives them life and from their hearts, they want to sing praises to God, as we've seen three or four times through the book of Revelation. They sing the song of Moses to their Savior Jesus, to God the Father, through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. All the praise from the Spirit of God is seen in the hearts and minds of the believers of Jesus as the Spirit illuminates his beauty, his perfection, his glory. And I just want to say to you, do you know something of that? Are your spiritual taste buds at work as the Holy Spirit goes to work? As we've read this book, has your heart been warmed? As you join us this morning, is it warm for the first time? If it is, that's the Holy Spirit doing his work, pointing away from himself and illuminating the beauty, perfection and glory of King Jesus and of God the Father. Do you know something of that? It's the life of heaven that flows from the throne of the Father and of the Son as the Holy Spirit does his work. But that's not all. It's the life of heaven, but there's also the gift of heaven. The gift of heaven. Some time ago, I read a tweet, and the tweet said of the 404 verses that make up the book of Revelation, there are 635 allusions, connections to the Old Testament. So every single verse in the book of Revelation, we could look up one and a half verses from the Old Testament that John draws through like a dragnet behind a fishing boat. And the quote goes on to say, so 
If you want to understand the book of Revelation, put down your newspaper, stop Googling the internet and read the Bible. It's a great challenge. If you want to understand Revelation, if you want to read it again, read your Old Testament so that you understand all the imagery that John has pulled through to the final book of the Bible. And we see that in these verses as we look at one to five more closely now. Think about this. In the first chapter of the Bible, it describes how the world was made with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The last chapter of the Bible describes how the Spirit of God will remake the world from a garden to a garden city. That's the flow of the whole of the story of the Bible. And we can see Eden in the first five sentences of Revelation chapter 22. Look at this with me. Look at verse 1. Just as God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, now once again he's dwelling with his people. We see that through verses 1 to 5. Verse 2, we see a tree of life. The very reason mankind was banished from the garden in case they would eat of the tree of life, it's now accessible. It's now covered with ripe fruit for the eating and for the enjoyment. Think of this, Christian friend. In, in our union with Christ, as we're united to him by faith, as we're filled with his spirit, we gaze on the Father just as God the Son has done throughout all eternity. That's the future that now we have in part. Look at verse 3. It's more of Eden. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. This relationship with God will be without any division, without any divide. And so verse three, once again, there'll be no more curse. We live under the reality of death because of sin and rebellion, us turning our back on our maker. But in the future, we will no longer have to say goodbye to anyone. No more death, no more decay, no more division. And verse four, his name will be on their foreheads. Now, the name of God always describes the nature of God. And in that day, we will see him. And in that day, we will be like him. No more will there be an internal wrestling of the heart of us not doing the good we ought to do or want to do. We will be with Jesus. We will be with him personally. The spirit of God implanted in our hearts will give us a pure spirit wanting to know God more and to keep his word. No more potential for sin any longer. No more darkness. No more decay. But notice verse 14. In verse 14, it says this, excluded from the city will be the murderers, those who practice magic and the occult, the fornicators, the heretics. They will be excluded. So who gets into heaven is the question you should be asking yourselves. If the bad people are excluded, who gets in? If the bad people are on the outside, who gets the entry key? It must be the good. If the bad are on the outside, then the good get in. The orthodox, the moral, the religious people, the people who work hard, those are the people who get in. That's not what Revelation 22, and that's not what the whole Bible says. Jesus gets to the end of the book of Revelation. He gets to chapter 22, and in verse 17, we hear from the lips of Jesus these words. Anyone who thirsts, come and take of the water of life and drink freely. 
See, it's not about being moral, it's about being thirsty. It's about knowing where you can go to meet that longing of your heart. And the question is, how is that possible? I mean, how does that happen? If the bad people are on the outside and the good people don't get in, only the, the people who are thirsty, how is heaven a reality for Christians? Look at verses 1 to 5 with me again, and let's see what Jesus has done. This is what the gospel teaches us. In heaven there is a tree of life. We can have a tree of life because Jesus climbed the cross, the tree of death, so that you and I, by faith, can have access to the tree of life. In, in heaven there's the water of life, the river of life. How is that possible? Because on the cross, Jesus got the cosmic thirst that we deserve. He got the cosmic thirst of separation, the cosmic thirst of his father turning his back on him so that you and I could have the water of life. How come is there no curse in heaven? Because Galatians chapter 3 says that Jesus Christ became the curse for you and me. How, why is there no more night in heaven? There's no more night in heaven because on the cross there was darkness. There was the darkness of separation. There was the darkness of separation as God the Father turned his back on his son as he bore our sin upon his shoulders. Jesus entered the darkness so that we could enter the light of the glory of God. He took our curse so that we could receive his blessing. He, he climbed the tree so that, so that we could have access to the tree of life, so that we could have access to the soul-quenching nature that can only be found in the river of life that flows because of the spirit of God who dwells in our hearts. And what's all this strange terminology about his name being on our forehead? In the Old Testament, the only person who had their name on their forehead, the name of God, was the high priest. Once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the very presence of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. And in the future, because of what Jesus Christ has done, in Revelation 22, there's a wonderful picture of the intimacy that we thought about last week, between every Christian and our maker. We will all be priests so that the glory of God, the majesty of God, the holy of God will no longer be a threat to us. Because of the work of Jesus, we will all be priests. We can all enter into his presence, just as we did in Eden in Genesis chapter 1. Everything that we see in these verses is all possible and only possible because of King Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is taking these truths and he's kneading it like a baker, like a master baker, into our hearts. This is the reality of heaven. This is what we're made for. This is what we long for. This is the certainty that we have because of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the down payment and the deposit and the guarantee that this is our destination. This is the new reality. And what will we be doing there? Verse 9 says we will be worshipping God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean a really long church service? I mean, who wants that? Can you imagine Zoom for eternity? I can, and it's not a good thing. But let me tell you this story. I read a story this week from, that Rico Tice used in one of his sermons. He says this. There's a story of a little boy who's taken with his dad into an old church. 
and the little boy is distracted during the service and there are uh, names, hundreds of names written on wooden boards, written in gold around the church walls. And the little boy, he's a bit bored, says to his dad, Dad, who are those people? What are those names? The dad turns to his son and says, well, those are the men and women who gave their lives in the services. Which one? The morning or the evening service, says the boy to his dad. Sometimes we can think of heaven like that. It's just a really long church service. Or we might think that Woody, Woody Allen got it right. He says, existence for all eternity. Well, that could get a little boring, especially towards the end. Heaven will not be boring. Heaven is worshipping God. It's giving God his due. No division now between the secular and the sacred. We worship God at work as we parents, as we do uh, things of relaxation. We bask in the glory of God. And one day we will do it with sight. Faith will no longer be required. No dividing line between sacred and secular. Think of the Apostle Paul. In Romans, he takes 11 chapters to, to rub our noses in the gospel. And then he brings all of that to chapter 12, verse 1. And then he says, in response of the gospel, we're to be full-time worshippers. Full-time worshippers. But in the future, in heaven, when we're worshipping God with an undivided heart, no longer will we have to pray the Lord's Prayer. No longer will we need to pray, hallowed be your name. It will be hallowed. No longer will we have to say, your kingdom come. It will have come. No longer will we need to pray, your will be done. It will always be done in heaven. It's the gift of heaven. But then finally, it's the longing of heaven. It's the longing for heaven. I remember this week a time when we lost one of our children. Can you remember if you're a parent? You must have lost your child. I hope you never have. But if you are like Joe and I, once we lost one of our children in a huge department store in America. All respectability goes out the window when that happens. You start to sweat profusely and you start to shout because you're afraid and you're scared. Thankfully, after two minutes or so, we were reunited with our child. I don't know if I've ever loved that child that much before thought I lost them forever and then we were reunited. In Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 it tells us about the sets out the stall for the book of Revelation. It says that Jesus Christ is coming so Christians should take heart because the time is near and then the book begins and now at the end of the book of Revelation we have a very similar message the message is one of urgency and longing because Christians are separated from their maker. Notice the tone of urgency. It's there in verse 6. Verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. So how should we respond? So believe what Jesus has said. Look at verse 7 and verse 9. God's blessing is on the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. So don't just believe it, verse 6, verse 7 and 9. Treat the message of this book with respect. Verse 10. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Understand it. Read it again and teach it. These words, this prophecy, this book, this book. 
Remember, the Lord's time is coming near. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 12. He's coming soon. It's so tender from John writing from his prison cell on the island of Patmos to these churches in modern day Turkey. There is a time coming of great persecution. We've seen that throughout the book. But remember that God wins. Stand firm, be steadfast, be courageous, because Jesus is coming back. You'll be reunited with him. Faith will give way to sight. He's coming soon. He's going to bring an end to all longing, all sorrow and suffering and pain. Everything wrong in the world will be put right simply because of who Jesus is. And, and who is he? Revelation has taught us he's the Alpha and he's the Omega. He's the first and he's the last. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's the root and the offspring of David. He's the one who Moses wrote about. He's the one who Abraham was glad to see. He's the one who delivered his people from the clutches of Egypt. He's the one who appeared to David. He's the one who Isaiah saw high and lifted up in his majesty and in his holiness. He's the branch. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's the great high priest. He's the lamb of God. Revelation 22. He's, he's the bright morning star, the first fruits, the dawning of a new creation. He's the bridegroom and he's the rider on the white horse. So as we close, for many people, Revelation is a book that shouldn't be in the Bible. It's un penetrable it's too complicated the the metaphors and the pictures are just too much to get your head around it's a book we could do without i hope you don't think that as we've journeyed through revelation in 13 weeks let me close with this thought when a husband gets married to a wife when a bridegroom gets married to the bride the bridegroom gives a ring it's not a promise of affections on that day because emotions and affections change, but it's a promise of the future. It's a promise of certainty that the bride can hear the words from her husband's lips. I will love you in the future. I will love you to the utmost. I will love you to the end. If ever we're separated, we will be reunited. It's safety and it's security and it's certainty. It's future love not just present love. That's the book of Revelation. It's a love letter from Jesus to his church. So patiently persevere until that day when he returns, no matter how uncertain, no matter how unsure the days become, God wins and he's coming. So long for his coming and tell others about it, the certainty of his return.